0: You're listening to Eye on the Triangle on WKNC eighty-eight point one. This weekend news on Eye on the Triangle.
1: A brief rundown of the latest news.
2: Good evening from WKNC News in Raleigh. I'm Evan Garris. And I'm John Boyner. Here's what we're following at seven oh at six fifty nine. Excuse me. A deadly attack on the U.S. consulate in Peshawar, Pakistan, has rattled military officials in the region. The New York Times reports that Islamist militants aligned with the Pakistani Taliban carried out the attack in which a large truck bomb demolished a wall of the structure as several of the militants attacked on foot with rifles and hand grenades. Six Pakistanis were killed in the attack and 20 more were wounded. However, there were no American casualties. This attack comes shortly after a massive American drone strike in the northwest frontier province, a known Taliban stronghold.
3: The ground beneath California has been mostly quiet since the 1989 Loma Prieta and 1994 Northridge earthquakes, both famous for bringing scenes of collapsed freeways into our living rooms. An earthquake yesterday in Baja California, slightly over 100 miles to the southeast of San Diego, was stronger than both and rattled some nerves. The tremor registered a magnitude 7.2 on the Richter scale, but it caused nowhere near the damage by striking well away from the largest population centers. KTLA reports only two fatalities and about 100 injuries, mostly on the Mexico side of the border. Caltech estimates that 20 million Californians could feel the shaking, and some as far away as Las Vegas and Phoenix sense the tremor, too. Moderate aftershocks continue tonight, but seismologists are concerned that the quake may have transferred stress to the southern end of the San Andreas Fault, which hasn't experienced a major earthquake in 300 years. The United
2: States Department of Transportation has proposed fining Toyota over a a defect in acceleration pedals that affected roughly 2.3 million automobiles nationwide. The $16.4 million fine would be the largest ever levied against a corporation by the United States government. Officials cited evidence that proves Toyota knew of the defect as early as September 2009, yet continued to manufacture vehicles without reporting its existence.
3: Toyota officials have not yet issued a statement. The space shuttle Discovery blasted off from Cape Canaveral early this morning on a mission to the International Space Station. Three women are among the crew, the most ever. France 24 reports that the shuttle took eight and a half minutes to reach Earth's orbit and traveled at five times the speed of sound. That's 16,155 miles an hour. Discovery is scheduled to arrive at the International Space Station on Wednesday when the three American women will join a fourth aboard the station, putting more women in orbit than ever before.
2: CNN Money reports that stocks rallied today with the Dow Jones Industrial Average climbing to nearly 11,000. Apple made a strong showing after the debut of the iPad, and investor confidence was bolstered by a strong housing report and last week's job report. Meanwhile, oil prices have surged to an 18-month high, as the dollar have, has, a mixed show, has given a mixed showing amongst other currencies. The Dow last touched 11,000 on September 29, 2008. The S&P 500 index gained 9 points, or 0.8%. The NASDAQ composite added 27 points, or 1.1%. All three indices are at 18-month highs.
3: If it weren't for the tree sperm that's transformed the brickyard and sidewalks around campus into the yellow brick road, you would be tempted to think that it's summer. Today's high of 88 tied a record and adds to what will probably be our longest stretch of 80-degree days since August. Tonight will once again be mostly clear with temperatures in the lower 60s. Some isolated sprinkles or rumbles of thunder can't be ruled out as some storms move down from Virginia. Tomorrow will be sunny and warmer at 90 or 91 degrees, but the record high of 93 doesn't appear threatened. Pollen levels will remain very high, with the primary culprits being oak and pine. Wednesday is a carbon copy of Tuesday. And if you can't wait to get your car looking shiny again, Thursday brings a slight hope of some thunder showers, but the best chance may come on Friday. Temperatures will also back off into the lower 80s by Thursday and maybe back into the 70s for Friday and the weekend. And just FYI, the average high for this time of year is still only around 69 degrees.
2: On this day in 1792, U.S. President George Washington exercises his authority to veto a bill the first time this power is used in the United States. In 1955, Winston Churchill resigns as Prime Minister of the United Kingdom amid indications of failing health. In 1937, U.S. Colin Powell... excuse me, Colin Powell, U.S. Army General, 12th Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, is born, and he was also the 65th Secretary
3: of State. The time is 7.03. You're now up to date on Eye on the Triangle.
4: opinions on the latest news the views in this editorial do not necessarily reflect the views of wknc student media or ncsu
2: while many of you were undoubtedly thankful for the brief reprieve that kept you from suffering the tedium of your classes at the end of last week i however couldn't muster similar levels of gratitude Notwithstanding the superfluous nature of spring holiday, as it occurred merely a week and a half after a five-day-long spring break, it's the underlying reason for the season in which I refuse to subscribe. Celebrating Easter, a period when throngs of faith-driven do-gooders effectively stall the United States economy by closing up shop and vacating to the nearest beach in order to tell their families the stories of an egg-wielding rabbit and bloody crucifixion, is simply no justification to break from daily life, especially at a university. I find it particularly disturbing that an academic institution dismisses its student body in what is, despite politically correct nomenclature, a de facto acknowledgement of the beliefs of a particular religious sect. Furthermore, I'll posit that the basis for this pause is as outrageous as it is ethically dubious. I highly doubt that any professor at this great institution would, given the chance, publicly tout the supposed benefits of believing that one otherwise unremarkable instance of gory human sacrifice admonishes all future generations from their transgressions. Regardless, altering a a center of higher education or higher learning's normal schedule because personally held beliefs of a portion of its student body is directly contrary to the policies it enacts in order to retain to remain secular and engaged in the academic pursuit. Call it spring holiday if you must, but the fact is it wouldn't exist if there were no Christian observance of Easter. I also contend that if one sex particular brand of faith is acknowledged, however tacitly, all the others must be as well. Class is not dismissed for the Jewish observance of Passover, nor is it canceled for the Islamic celebration of A'id. We don't celebrate Shiva Ratri, as, as do some Hindus, or do we acknowledge any of the various Sikh Gurperbs? Group it's quite easy to see how quickly this becomes impractical. My intent is not to assault your personal beliefs and convictions, however fatuous and ill-founded they may be. I simply wish to keep them, for, keep them from inserting themselves into my academic environment and obfuscating the purpose of a university education. Personal faith, sets of beliefs held in spite of evidence to the contrary, should carry no weight in setting a university's operating procedure or, for that matter, any other policy in a university setting. I think it's high time we all stop being so damned religious and, for once, do our homework.
3: Viewpoint on Eye on the Triangle.
4: Evan's opinions on the latest news. The views in this editorial do not necessarily reflect the views of WKNC, Student Media, or NCSU.
0: VIP.
3: Talking to people that matter.
5: You're listening to VIP on Eye on the Triangle. I'm Michael Jones. April 5th was Chancellor Woodson's first official day. During his visit with student media, he sat down with myself to give his views on a wide variety of topics, including his first impressions and goals with the university, alongside of his opinions about athletics. Today was your first day at NC State.
6: First impressions? Uh, This is such a great university. I had breakfast with the students this morning. And they're so passionate about being here at NC State and feel uh, good about the education they're getting. Although they have things that they want the chancellor to work on, like transportation, uh, for example. But uh, NC State's such a a strong university, and I'm really proud to be here. What were some of the things that the
5: students were bringing up initially?
6: I I think that a couple of things. Number one, the students want to feel a lot of pride in, in their university, which is understandable. And that pride manifests itself through great academic programs and also athletics. Uh, and, and so, you know, we talked a lot about the kind of things that we can do at, at NC State to promote uh, pride within the university, keep the students connected to the university and make them feel uh, connected. And, and, and then we talked about parking and, and transportation. Yeah.
5: How do you feel the transition has been coming from uh, your previous university to NC State?
6: I'd say that two things. Um, Jim Woodward, Chancellor Jim Woodward, did a great job of leading the university over the course of the next year, uh, the last year. He's done a, a terrific job of helping me get prepared for, the, for move, the move here. We've talked weekly. In fact, we've talked biweekly in many cases. So he's, he's really helped me uh, get prepared for the transition. I've been at NC State, as you just mentioned, for 24 hours uh, in ter- in an official capacity, but since December, this is like my seventh trip uh, to North Carolina. So I've done as much as possible to help myself get prepared, meeting a lot of the key people in the university out in the state state government. So, uh, I feel very ready to do this job.
5: Well, since this is your first day, what are your goals within the next year?
6: Well, first of all, is to spend time getting to know NC state, getting to know what's important to the students, the faculty, the staff, and the alumni, and then uh, trying to get the university organized around uh, a shared vision for our future. Uh, Everyone wants NC State to be as strong as possible, and North Carolina needs NC State to be strong. And so I'm just anxious to work with the faculty and the staff and the the other administrative leaders here uh, to build a plan for the future.
5: What were some things that you were working with Woodward to do to get ready for this position?
6: Well just mainly to make sure that I understood the issues that that he was dealing with so nothing you never want in the transition of uh, of leadership to have things fall through the cracks so it was just important to me to know that uh, that the things that uh, Chancellor Woodward was working on that he hadn't been able to finish because of timing uh, that I picked up the baton and continued to run with it um, so mainly just the the classic sort of management issues you talk about in any kind of transition.
5: So what types of uh, perceptions do you think or would you like to change while you're here at NC State?
6: Well, um, that's a good question. A couple of things that strikes me is um, first of all, a lot of people that are professionals in, in academia know that NC State is a very, very strong university. But I don't think NC State has as strong of a national and international brand as as it deserves, given the strength of its programs. So, telling the story, making sure that uh, that people around the country and certainly in North Carolina understand what North Carolina State means to the people of this state, and frankly, what it's doing to solve some of the major challenges that we face in society today. So, promoting. Part of the job of chancellor is to is to be the chief uh, speech speechifier and uh, and the person that really sells the university too.
5: So, what are you most nervous about coming into the university?
6: Well, you know what, I don't think that I'm <clears throat> I'm particularly nervous. I mean, I want to take the time to make sure that I understand the university and understand what what people want. Uh, for NC State. Um, The only nervousness is that I've I've been at one institution for 25 years and uh, I've got a lot to learn and I need to be on a very, very quick learning curve because um, NC State needs for me to have a good sense of what the university is about as quickly as possible. So I'm not nervous about that, but that's the that's what I need to focus my, most of my attention on.
5: Where do you see some of the non-engineering schools going within the next year? Or how do you see them developing over your span here's chances? You mean the
6: colleges? Mm-hmm. Here? Yes. Well, there are a lot of non-engineering colleges. That's miracle. true. So um, yeah. NC State cannot be strong if only engineering is strong. Engineering has to be strong. But... Um, I need to see and I want to see and I know the faculty expect to see and students every college at this university as strong as possible. Uh, Now, having said that, I think that NC State has a clear opportunity because of its historic strength in agriculture, engineering, textiles, some very technical fields to, um, to contribute to some of the grand challenges that we face in the world in a very special way. So um, my goal is to empower every college at NC State to be as strong as as any in the country. First impressions
5: about student media. I know you just got here not too long ago. I tell you, if
6: I had been here as a freshman, I would have loved to work up here, but I'm not sure I could have kept the hours that you guys keep. Yeah. It's very good space. Uh, I've heard wonderful things about uh, both uh, the technician award winning, you know, they've, and, um, I've spent a lot, a little bit of time with the technician because I've done a number of interviews. Um, you know, the, the yearbook and the, and the radio station—I mean, it's a great asset for uh, for the students of NC State and, frankly, the community.
5: This year, nobody applied to be editor in chief for the technician. What could the university do to encourage people to get involved with the student newspaper?
6: You know, I don't—I don't know that I have a good answer for that, other than. Um, you know, we need to do everything we can to make first of all, you need to know that my experience to this point has been working with a student newspaper that's completely independent and and of course, I've worked closely with them through uh, the years and and so I need to learn a bit more about the structure here to make sure I understand how um, how the operation is is run. but this is an incredible experience for students and clearly um, the more people you have involved the lighter the load it is for all of the people involved uh, so getting people passionate about uh, communication about making sure that that they're you know communicating the key issues that the, from the students perspective should be a key thing the university administration can do but beyond you know, really being a strong advocate i think you know or you may know that um, recently, I sat down with the editorial board of the News and Observer, and you know, one of the first questions from uh, the News and Observer was, you know, what what's your what do you think about uh, the technician and its challenge of, and and that was the first I heard about it. Um, so you've got a strong advocate in a local media that really wants to see you successful. And, uh, of course, you probably also read in that interview and in the editorial that was published after that, my immediate response was, you know, we cannot not have a student newspaper. It's just unimaginable for me that a university of this size and this stature wouldn't be able to get students sufficiently interested in what you do uh, to populate your your editorial offices. So um, I need to learn what the challenges are and and. Uh, but, I, you know, but certainly I don't want to see uh, a student newspaper fail.
5: And just a couple of questions about athletics here at NC State. Um, what are your thoughts on this expansion of the NCAA tournament?
6: Oh, you're really trying to get me in trouble now. You know, I'm not sure that I'm the best person to ask about how big the tournament should be. But personally, this isn't an NC State policy or this isn't something that that we've talked about as a university but as a fan, I really like the size of the field now.
5: One of the big elephants in the room is Athletics Director Lee Fowler. Now, there's rumors that he's leaving. Can you give us any information on what the current situation is with the Athletics Department?
6: Uh, there's no change there at this point.
5: Uh, and also, we're speaking about athletics. You know, Many college presidents aren't for a playoff system in college football. Uh, where do you stand with this issue?
6: Well, I think it would be a challenge. Uh, but again... My job is to run a university and, uh, you know, the the athletic directors, the coaches, the the athletes themselves need to think about what makes the most sense. But I I could imagine that it would be a big challenge. We already have every conference has uh, some level of playoff. Often Uh, I'm coming from a conference that, in fact, does not have a playoff. That is, they don't have a conference football championship game, uh, and that's something that you know, I think the championship game and a conference has added a lot. But if you go to a playoff system, uh, you, you're going to stretch out a season probably. But, you know, there are other people that need to need to weigh in on that. Right. I'm more worried about the, the student athlete and making sure that they have enough time to be a student and to be successful in the classroom.
5: Who do you predict to take away the NCAA championship tonight?
6: I see. Now you're getting me back to Indiana. Um, <laughs> Well, since uh, since Duke uh, beat uh, my old university in the Sweet 16, um, you know it's hard for me to imagine Duke not winning this game. Uh, but this team from Butler is an amazing group of of uh, student athletes that have come together in a way that is uh, shows you know the power of of teamwork because they don't have exactly an individual. Uh, national player of the year star um but they play uh they play basketball that is very old school basketball very that's why when they play no team scores more than 50 points or so uh, because they're just uh tremendous defense so uh I, i can't imagine duke not winning this but wouldn't it be cool thank you very much for joining us you're welcome it's been my pleasure
4: you're listening to Eye on the Triangle on WKNC 88.1. Next up, before we take a short break, or sorry, after we take a short break, we will go into Eye on the Triangle sports and hear this, so stay tuned.
7: Welcome to Eye on the Triangle
1: with Sesha Hindi. A weekly glimpse into our community. Bringing you news from the brickyard to your backyard. From the sidelines
7: on Eye on the Triangle.
4: Your weekly update on athletic events.
7: Hope everyone had a good Easter. We're going to talk about uh, baseball's weekend, talk a little bit about Final Four, and then uh, football had its first practice of the spring, so we're going to discuss that just a little bit here tonight.
5: Yeah, that's right. So let's get started with baseball. Uh, They had a big weekend against number 1 UVA.
7: They sure did. Uh, Took two of three from the number 1 ranked Cavaliers, so a huge series for the baseball team this weekend. Uh, Friday's game was uh, Elliott Avent's 500th win here at NC State. The team was down 3-1 in the eighth, tied it up 3-3, fell down by two more runs in the ninth, 5-3, got two more runs to tie that up. Game went to extra innings, and a uh, game-winning RBI by Matt Burquist gave the pack the win in game one of that series. Came back Saturday and lost 8-4. Then Sunday took the series with the second of second win in three games. Pack was down 4 3 in the seventh when a grand slam by Andrew Sensen gave them a 7 4 lead. Virginia got two late runs to close it to 7 6, but they couldn't close the gap completely. And the state escaped their home series, taking two out of three from the Cavs. Um, like I said, obviously a huge win anytime you take down a number one team like that. Next action will be a two-game series Tuesday and Wednesday against Coppin State, and then a three-game series at uh, rival North Carolina next weekend will be, the base- will be baseball's next action, and they will look to build on the momentum from a huge uh, series victory over Virginia. How do you think this momentum from such a big series is going to spill over, especially when it comes to ACC play? obviously it's huge anytime you get a close win the pack lost only one one of three against miami but the one win they got was very close game and then two more close games over a quality opponent this weekend just gives them confidence um late in games when they're close and or down a couple of runs they know they can get them because they've gotten them in the past i believe the win friday was the was the pack's fourth walk-off victory of the season still fairly in a fairly young season so just very impressive and and it they know they can do it, so what, no matter what the score is and what the circumstances are, they understand what they're capable of in the ninth inning, and I think that'll be huge as the season po- as the season moves forward. It, it'll it'll let them know that they've got a chance every game, and they're never out of it. Now, what do you think uh, the
5: pack taking such a big series kind of says to the rest of the ACC?
7: Well, it shows them that um, state can beat anybody. Um, beating Virginia not only is that the class of the ACC, that's the class of the whole nation. So if State can take two or three from Virginia, they can certainly sweep or take two or three from anybody. And I think the message is fairly simple, that, that State's for real and that uh, they're, they're going to be a force to be reckoned with as the season progresses.
5: Now, everybody says, you know, you'll take one big series, I'll give you that. But when it comes to the long run, how do you think that they are going to be able to compete, especially when it comes a couple months from now uh, in the ACC, especially against big teams like Virginia?
7: You never know. You never know. Um It might end up in a couple months from now, we might be looking back at this series and saying, wow, that was a fluke. Um, They might lose after this. They might might turn this into a big run and make a huge run out of it. I know, I mean, if you look back at basketball season, I hate to be so negative, but State uh, blew out Duke, which was a great team. We see now just how great they are in the national championship game, but State blew out Duke and then... Uh, A week or two later, they're in the middle of a seven-game losing streak. So you never know what will happen. It certainly shows what can happen and how well they can do, but I really I still think it's anyone's guess as to how the rest of the season will pan out. So the big news of the sports weekend, of course, Final Four.
5: Can you give us a bit of a breakdown about what happened?
7: Yeah, just real briefly, uh, Butler took down Michigan State in a game that uh, some would probably call it ugly. There wasn't a lot of scoring, especially late. Both teams had a heck of a time getting field goals in the last 10 minutes of the game, but Butler got the buckets they needed. They got a putback late, and they made their free throws, and they held on to beat a a Michigan State team that had a few guys down to injury, but nonetheless a huge win for a Butler team that, I mean, a five-seed out of the Horizon League. They haven't lost since December. They are red hot, and they will take that momentum in the national championship game and just... great underdog story. Uh, Butler was a good team but certainly not expected to be in the national championship game so always good for basketball when you've got an underdog in there. And then on the other side of the coin, two uh, wouldn't say powerhouses lately but certainly two elite programs in West Virginia and Duke battled and Duke was real dominant. Their big three of Kyle Singler, John Shire and Nolan Smith has carried them all season and um, Saturday night was no exception. They shot the lights out. The whole team played well. Duke attacked the glass well. Um, Really was not in doubt much at all late, late first half, early second half. Duke really was uh, asserted its dominance and took down West Virginia to move on a good West Virginia team. A lot of people said the winner of that was will be the national champion. I'm sure Butler and Michigan State, neither one, were happy to hear that, and Butler will certainly have that on their minds when they take on Duke tonight at about 9:30 for the net with the national championship on the line.
5: So let's talk a little bit about that. The big news, I guess, of the day, AC or not ACC, but national championship tonight. Uh can I just call you out and make a prediction because people will download the podcast and and they'll go back and they go man he wasn't even close or they can go back and go he was dead on so predictions yeah. about the uh the final
7: Yeah definitely put me on the spot here um I've I've been borderline I've gone back and forth I do think Duke will win I think Butler will give them a great game but I just I don't see them stopping Duke the fact that Duke has the perimeter ability to shoot the three, and then the way they've been crashing the boards lately offensively with Zubek and then both Plumlee brothers, they make it tough on you both inside, and then everybody knows what they can do from the perimeter. I think the fact that they do both of those things so well, I could see Butler maybe taking one of those away from them, but I don't see them taking both away. butlers I think they've gone 12 games in a row without letting the team – get 60 or more points. I don't see that happening tonight against Duke. I think Duke gets, you know, 70, 75. I don't think they go off, but I just don't think Butler can quite slow them down enough to overcome um, maybe a little bit of offensive shortcomings on their part. Obviously, Saturday night was was not them at their best, but that kind of shooting performance, I don't see them getting away with it again, and even with a little bit better shooting performance, I don't think they can quite hang with the Blue Devils, but I do think it'll be a good game. So, we shall see. So what does a Duke win mean for the ACC? It's huge. Um, Duke wins tonight, that'd be five ACC titles since 2000 for the ACC. That'd be two for the Blue Devils, two for UNC, and one for Maryland way back at the beginning of the decade. And obviously you take, I mean, that's every other year for the past decade an ACC team has won the national championship, so it certainly solidifies the argument that the ACC is as good or better than any other basketball conference in the nation, especially this year. A lot of people called the ACC down. They said the Big East was the powerhouse. Duke took down West Virginia and they're representing the ACC at the, at the highest level. If they win a national championship, it's going to be really incredible that even in a year some would call down that Duke still took the national championship to represent the conference.
5: All right, so let's move off of basketball. We'll let let our predictions lie where they are right now. Uh football just opened up with their first scrimmage.
7: Uh what can we take away from that? Um, an interesting afternoon. The it was 48, it was a 96-play scrimmage, I believe. Uh, the first team offense had 48 snaps against the first-team defense, and the same with the backups. The second-team offense took 48 snaps against the second-team defense. Obviously, everybody's going to want to hear about how the first-team action went. Uh, Very first play of it, Mike Glennon, he hasn't seen a whole lot of time in meaningful games, but certainly the talent was a five-star recruit out of high school. Everybody's been anxious. Very first play of the scrimmage, he threw a 79-yard touchdown to Owen Spencer which is not really much of a surprise considering two things. A, the number of deep balls Spencer caught last fall, and B, the secondary struggles. The negative pack fans will say, well, wow, look at our secondary struggling again. But, um, you know, that, that was what it was. It might have been a great offensive play. It might have been a slip-up in the secondary. We don't know. I didn't see it. Um, otherwise, on offense, Curtis Underwood, a lot of people are interested in seeing what he's got as the two running backs last year are both gone now. Underwood had uh, – 44 yards on 14 carries and 28 yards on three catches. And Owen Spencer, in addition to the first touchdown he caught, he also caught another touchdown. He had 96 yards and two touchdowns on the day. Um, Also, a lot of fans are going to want to know about Irving. Nate Irving was uh, honorable mention 2008 uh, selection at linebacker. Uh, he had a big day coming back in his first action in a long time after that catastrophic injury last summer. He had eight tackles. Three and a half in the backfield, also had a sack and a forced fumble. And another player coming off an injury, Marcus Kuhn, a defensive tackle, had just as big a day, if not a bigger day. He had six tackles in the scrimmage, five of those for a loss, and he had two sacks. So a big day for those two guys and very exciting to see them apparently healthy uh, early in the spring.
5: All right, I think that just about wraps it up for sports for this week. Thank you very much. Thank you,
7: guys. We will uh, look forward to speaking to you guys next week. On the Triangle,
4: Your local music news. This week on Eye on the Triangles Hear This, we decided to take a look at campus concert series at UNC Chapel Hill and here at NC State. The first show we looked at was Fridays on the Lawn, which will be April 9th, um, and will feature Aminal and Bright Young Things on Harris Field at 6:30 P.M. And the second show was one that the DTH Diversions Uh, section that the Daily Tar Heel is hosting, which we will also take a look at in a few minutes.
0: My name is Rachel Sloan, and with me today I have Tommy Anderson, the new general manager of WKNC 88.1. Today we're going to be discussing NC State's on-campus concert series, Fridays on the Lawn. Tommy, why was Fridays on the Lawn created?
8: Well, the reason behind it is, you know, pretty simple. Uh, It's to provide the NC State community nc state students and the surrounding community with a uh, free concert with uh, some great local bands
0: where did the idea come from and was there anything that inspired it
8: well i I can't really speak to any um specific inspirations just the general idea of providing you know a free concert with great music you know in in a great location right here out front of witherspoon student center in harris field's a great spot the original idea came from actually Mike Alston's position paper when he was uh, applying to be general manager last year. He said one of his main points was that we needed an event like this, you know, a free concert with local bands on state's campus. Um, where the specific inspiration came from, I don't know. I mean, it's a, it's a pretty simple idea. Give free, free, good music to students.
0: How much planning and what are some of the steps that go into an event like this?
8: Quick answer here is a lot. Um, you know, CanC doesn't really have you know a, a lot of appropriations power. We don't really have a really big purse. So we have to use, I guess, our campus connections, other other um, departments on campus. You know, like student government, inter-residence council, uh, the union activities board was, all 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 of those um, departments were a, a huge help in getting the thing off the ground. We we have to uh, seek sponsors outside of campus. And apart from that, I guess the actual planning and logistics of setting it up, we do have our own sound guy, Eric Schultz, who is a genius. He mixes everything himself, so that is a really big benefit that we have a our very own sound guy that works for the station that we basically get for free.
0: What are some specific steps that go into planning an event like this that most people outside of the behind the scenes wouldn't realize that you have to do?
8: Well, the first thing that comes to mind with behind the scenes stuff is actually, you know, compensating the bands. We did, you know, set them up with some free pizza and a t-shirt, but uh, apart that, you know, actual monetary compensation, there is, you know, some, some people would call it, you know, bureaucratic stuff, but it is necessary. Get, um, all the bands have to have appropriate paperwork, you know, they have to, I guess, actually they have to prove that they're United States citizens before that we can get them paid. And in addition to that, there's a lot of the other like simple stuff, like making sure that. We have ads running The Technician the week of. We have a promo recorded for the radio station the week of, and then we run that a lot that people know about that, that we blog about it. Everyone knows what time it is because that's something we ran into last fall in the three concerts we had in the series last fall. There was some discrepancies about, you know, the the time change from 6.30 to 7 and back to 6.30. Um, so keeping everything in order is a task in and of itself, I guess.
0: Can you give us specific information on the next up-and-coming Fridays on the Lawn?
8: Yeah, the event is April 9th at 6.30 p.m. That's Friday, April 9th um, of this week. The event will start at 6.30. It's at uh, Harris Field, which is at the uh, intersection of Dan Allen Drive and Cates Avenue, right out here in front of Witherspoon Student Center, where the radio station is. Um, The bands will be Aminal and Bright Young Things. Both are from the area. Both are very good. If you've listened to KNC a lot, you've heard both of these bands. The event is open to the public. Anyone's welcome to come. Of course, if you're at state, you're encouraged to come out. Uh, there'll be free food, T-shirts, limited supply. So uh, be sure you get there on time, I guess.
0: Great. So everybody knows to come on out this Friday to check out Aminal and Bright Young Things. And also just to kind of grasp what we are doing here at KNC. And now that you know all the effort that's put into it, you can kind of maybe enjoy it even more than you would have originally. I
8: was on
5: your side.
9: Right by your side.
4: On WKNC 88.1. You just heard Waiting in Love by Aminal, and they will be playing on Friday on uh, Harris Field at 6 30 p.m. this Friday. And before we move on to our next part of Hear This, Rachel Sloan sat down with the DTH Diversions editor to talk about their local campus, concert campus series. So stay tuned for that.
0: I was able to chat with Jordan Lawrence, the Diversions editor at the Daily Tar Heel. Jordan gives us the scoop on the Daily Tar Heel Diversions concert series. Why was the Dive Party first created?
9: The Dive Party was first created. Um, this is the eighth one. My uh, former editor, Brian Reed, who now uh, writes for the Independent Weekly. Um, he had the first one at Nightlight. Um, I was actually coming into my freshman year when he had it. And he created it to just kind of show the students at UNC um, what was going on in the local music community using the Daily Tar Heels to promote it so that, you know, kind of cross-promote, so that, you know, the uh, musicians had an opportunity to access the students and that we could kind of build our name by riding on them.
0: And you guys see it progressing? Yeah,
9: I think it gets bigger and bigger time. Um, I think that the Bills this year have been um, more balanced maybe than last year. The two last year had pretty um, marquee headliners for us to throw on them. The, uh, the second one especially, we had the Love Language play it last spring.
0: What kind of planning goes into an event like this each semester?
9: Well, it basically starts with uh, it starts with me um, asking uh, Glenn Booth, he uh, owns Local 506, if we can get a date, which is a lot of times hard to knock, uh, to nail down because uh, he has a big touring schedule and all that. So the first thing that's, that's important is to uh, get what dates we can get down. And that's a little bit of a hassle a lot of times because you have to work around the touring bands coming through because they obviously get first dibs. Um, And then I basically just go out and see what bands are willing to play. And usually I I can get just about what I want because, especially at this point, it's a pretty established show and bands do want to play it. It's, it's a pain, but it's a good pain because I get to interact with all kinds of bands that I maybe wouldn't anyway, and we get sources out of it. So it's, it's a really good thing for us.
0: You guys have a show coming up this Friday. Will you tell listeners about who's playing and all the information they need to know to go see it?
9: Yeah. Well, the uh, show's going to start at 9.30, and it's at the uh, local 506, and it's a free show, as are all of our uh, um, dive parties. And uh, first up will be uh, Jason Kuchma who is the uh, lead singer of Red Collar. Um, And uh, starting about last fall, he started doing a uh, solo acoustic set that he takes around and opens for people with and does some smaller shows and stuff apart from Red Collar. And he um, plays some uh, interesting acoustic versions of uh, Red Collar songs, and he does some really cool covers. Then next up, there is uh, the Dirty Little Heaters, who are a great garage band out of Durham. Their uh, lead singer, Reece McHenry, in my opinion, has probably about the best voice in the triangle. Then next up is The Beast. Who are one of the coolest bands in the area at this point. They uh, they are a jazz trio with an MC, um, so they infuse jazz and hip hop into this really cool, very fresh sound. And uh, last up, we've got Luego, um, which is uh, Patrick Phelan's band with uh, Jeff Crawford, who's a local songwriter and producer, and uh, um, uh, Nick Yeager is also in the band. And uh, Jeff and Nick were used to be in Roman Candle when they were in town. Yeah, and they play in a really cool brand of like country rock and blues. So it's
4: it's going to be a really good show. Hi, on the Triangle on WKNC 88.1. You just heard Mexico Way by the Dirty Little Heaters. Just as a reminder, the Daily Tar Heels Diversion section is presenting Luego with the Beast and the Dirty Little Heaters at the local 506 in Chapel Hill on Friday, April 9th. Also, Fridays on the Lawn... Uh, sponsored by WKNC, is featuring Aminal and Bright Young Things on Harris Field at 6.30 p.m. There will be free pizza and shirts, and both these shows are on Friday. They are not conflicting. The uh, Daily Tar Heel Diversions show actually is following Fridays on the Line, so make sure to check those out.
7: Community Canvas on Eye on the Triangle.
4: Your local arts news.
10: Arising from humble beginnings in 1998, the city of Durham hosts the Full Frame Film Festival each spring. The now internationally known event is devoted to nonfiction cinema. This year, Full Frame will be screening more than 100 documentaries beginning Thursday, April 8th through Sunday, April 11th in downtown Durham, centered around the Carolina Theater on West Morgan Street.
1: In order to help our listeners prepare for the festival, Community Canvas spoke to Deidre Hodge, Executive Director at Full Frame, and NCSU alumni Robert Green, whose documentary, Owning the Weather, premiered at last year's festival. Deidre discusses what makes Full Frame unique to other documentary festivals.
11: Full Frame uh, is one of the first documentary-only film festivals in the United States. But I think it's more, more unique to say that it's, uh, or more specific to say, it's really the Filmmakers Festival. Um, and by that I mean filmmakers love to come to Full Frame because, first of all, we, we screen on such beautiful equipment, and they get to see their films in, on top-notch screens with top-notch you know, projectors. But it's also a place for them to get out of the city, out of a, of a market situation where you see at the larger festivals, and really connect with one another and their fans in a more intimate setting. Um, and I think that's part of what makes us truly unique.
10: How easy is it to navigate the festival?
11: We are one of the only festivals that happens within four city blocks. Generally, they're spread out. You have to get on a shuttle. You have to go from one venue to the next. Uh, You have to stand in long lines, and that's not how we work. We really take up only four blocks in downtown Durham, so everything's
12: very walkable.
1: Robert, can you speak to your experiences with Full Frame?
12: Well, Full Frame was really um, by far the best experience. Festivals are a funny thing in that a place like Full Frame has a lot of buzz and a lot of excitement, but a lot of festivals are much less so, and so they can be kind of depressing sometimes. You get all hopeful, and you go to a screening, and you have, you know, you're talking to yourself, you're, you know, a friend of yours that showed up, and then three other people or something, and, um, and that's typical, no matter for big films, small films, it's, it's, pre- it's pretty, pretty striking. And last year, uh, my, my first uh, feature film that I directed, um, owning the weather, was made its, made its world premiere full frame and sold out shows, and I ended up having one of the, the best weekends of my life, pretty much. People, people pay attention to Full Frame. It's, it's a loved festival, and uh, it, it's a brand that actually still means something, which, you know, with things as crazy as they are in terms of trying to get your film out there now, uh, Full Frame is one of those brands that does mean something.
10: Deirdre, why host a festival dedicated to documentaries as opposed to fictional films or just showcasing films in general?
11: I could talk forever about that. Um, I think there's a couple of different things. One is that the form of documentary is in flux changing and it's growing, and that's because of the democratization of filmmaking. So many people can afford a camera now and an editing suite you know, on their Apple at home in their living room that you really see a lot more people making film, being interested in film, and documentary is the most accessible form. Uh, that being said, the level of filmmaking keeps going up, and I think that's particularly interesting to me in the documentary world, whereas in the fictional world, you don't have that kind of easy access. You know, you need somebody to write a script, you need somebody to you know, you need actors to speak the lines, you need a lot of other pieces to make those kinds of movies. The other thing that's really exciting about the form is it brings the world to us. You know, I can't think of a discussion topic that hasn't been shot in a documentary. It's as vast as the world itself, from the tiniest cell structure to, you know, the largest issues on the globe. And I don't think you can also explore that in fictional narrative. I'm a big fan of fictional narrative, but it just can't be as vast as the documentary is.
1: Robert, from a filmmaker's standpoint, why did you focus your career on documentaries as opposed to fictional films?
12: I love movies first and foremost. And what I realized over, the, over maybe the last 10 years, documentaries are the, the best chance to make something innovative and interesting and good. I mean, when you talk about, like, Sundance or South by Southwest or whatever, if you read anything about the festivals, which some people do and some people don't, but basically it's pretty much a consensus that the documentary side is, of those festivals are the, is the most interesting side. People, a, a fiction film can work or not work based on, you know, a, getting a good actor or getting, you know, a good story. Or, but with a documentary, you're just freer as the filmmaker to experiment and to try things to do innovative things and to tell different kinds of stories. We've done several different, we've done a, a film about a guy sneaking a camera into prison. We've done a film about weather modification, which is owning the weather. We've done my, my new film, which is just making the festival rounds now, is a film about a, a girl who graduates from high school, and then she sort of goes on this dramatic three-day journey um, to sort of find herself and figure out what she's doing with her life. And it And if we shot fourteen hours of footage and it ended up being a feature film that's starting to play in festivals and getting get acclaim or whatever, and it's great. And these are all like the just the just the variousness of these of these films the things that you can do, the stories you can tell are so much more open in my mind than like a narrative film and I love narrative films as much as anything, but i personally I'm much more invigorated by. The possibilities of documentary—not just in form, but in story.
1: What opportunities does Full Frame present to filmmakers? Specifically, what doors have opened for you after the premiere of Owning the Weather?
12: We played in uh, festivals around the world and Italy and across the country, and people people pay attention to Full Frame. That was where we started everything. Since the film is now on iTunes, it's on Netflix, it's on a lot of other dig- digital distribution platforms, and. Uh, that that wouldn't have been possible without full frame sort of paying attention to the film and giving it its premiere.
10: What are some events to look forward to at this year's festival?
12: Well,
11: first of all, the fact that we're doing two free outdoor screenings, which I love both Friday and Saturday night, two free screenings for the public in Durham central park, which is directly across from Piedmont restaurant and food vendors will be there. And we're inviting people to bring their blankets and come out and see the films. We've never done that before. And that's really, really exciting. I am thrilled that our opening night film is Kings of Pastry. That is directed by D.A. Pennebaker and Chris Hedges. It is the U.S. premiere of that film. I can just say personally, I'm a longtime fan of theirs. So for me, it's very exciting to get to work at a festival where uh, people who've been my idols for years are on our board. So I'm really looking forward to it. The film itself is so much fun and so exciting. It's about a pastry competition in France that only happens every four years. So it's like the Olympics. And it's a, a highly coveted position. And I won't mangle the French, but, but they call them M-O-F. It basically means you're the, you know, a, a head chef of pastry. And these men make these beautiful pieces of art out of sugar and ribbon and chocolate. And then they have to present them. And it's four days and all these different levels of, of dessert that have to be made. And the other thing that's really exciting beyond all of our new premieres is we have a thematic series this year. And that's being done on work and labor. And I can't think of a more timely topic. The curators of that series are Stephen Reichardt and Julie Wagner, And they were uh, nominated for the Oscar for their film The Last Truck, the closing of a GM plant. We have some films with some local ties as well. Um, We have a film called In My Mind, which is the musician Jason Moran exploring the works of Thelonious Monks. This is a jazz film, and if you love jazz, it's a great film to see. But that was made out of CDs, Center for Documentary Studies, at Duke, and it's a really beautiful film. And then our two center frame events, uh, one is the film Steven Soderbergh's And Everything is Going Fine, which features the life of Spalding Gray, and Spalding's widow will be with us to talk about Spalding. And the editor of that film is joining us as well, because from a filmmaking standpoint, the editing on this film is really quite astonishing. The other center frame event is a great film called Do It Again. This features a reporter from the Boston Globe who is on a mission to get the band The Kinks reunited. And on his mission, he finds all these great musicians and sits down and plays kink songs with them and talks about it. uh, Sting is one of those, Clive Davis. And uh, then we have uh, the local cover band called The Kingsmen who are going to play. And that's just going to be a really fun nighttime event.
1: With over 100 films at the festival each year, how do you get the most out of your experience?
12: The way it's set up, it's, it's, it's relatively easy to see a lot of things because of how close everything is. Just don't be afraid to see four or five movies a day. Like, don't be afraid to watch everything you want to watch because you might get exhausted, but it, it's worth it because there's going to be some great films and all the other stuff happens around the movies. And it, I think people who don't end up seeing a lot of movies end up being left out of a lot of, a lot of conversations. So it's important to see movies. and then, But it's also important, I would say, to try to, when you're in between movies, to get outside because hopefully it'll be beautiful like it was last year. It's a, really, it's a nice thing to walk around and just see people and get a sense of the energy. But, but yeah, just try to make a schedule and try to stick to it because the more movies you can see, the more memorable the experience will be.
1: You've been listening to Community Canvas's pre-coverage of the Full Frame Festival. For more information about the festival, including tickets, events, and screenings, visit their website at
10: www.fullframefest.org. And for Kieran and Jacob's documentary recommendations, be sure to check out the post-show blog at www.wknc.org. This has been Community Canvas on Eye on the Triangle. I wish my life
3: was a Hollywood
10: movie show.
4: Fantasy world of satellite villains and heroes. Because satellite heroes never feel any pain. And satellite heroes never really die. And that wraps up another episode of Eye on the Triangle on WKNC 88.1. Make sure to check out the post-show blog at wknc.org slash eot for more on this show and next week's.